If there was any one word that might capture the story of our world today, it might be this one. Division. Division seems to be, in so many ways, the last remaining shared story of our time. So many of us relate to the feeling, all too well, of what feels like an increasingly divided world. From political polarization to cancel culture and everything in between, it feels like every idea and issue is just a moment or two away from spiraling into another polarized standoff. Every day, a new front line in the ongoing us-versus-them battles of our time. But what if we were somehow united among our divisions? What if we valued our differences, such that they wouldn't erase our senses of selfhood or challenge us personally, but rather empower and uplift us and a more just and equitable future? How can we look at differences in ways that don't divide us, but instead help us to become a little bit more of who we want to be? From The New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may help shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. Culture, shared stories, and the value of coming together, sometimes despite and sometimes in honor of our differences, are some of the many topics that our guest today often writes about. We're honored to be joined today by Alyssa Wilkinson, a senior culture reporter and critic at Vox.com, where she writes about film, TV, and culture. Alyssa is also associate professor of English and humanities at the King's College in New York City, where since 2009, she has taught courses on criticism, cinema studies, literature, and cultural theory. Her 2022 book is called Salty, Lessons on Eating, Drinking, and Living from Revolutionary Women, which features stories of 20th century figures who challenged norms and defied conventional wisdom. Alyssa, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. Well, Alyssa, I want to start by talking about Salty because it, it comes at such an interesting time. I know when you uh, started to get your ideas together and started to write this book, I understand that it was during the height of lockdowns during the COVID-19 pandemic when the idea of getting together with friends, uh, no less around a, a table of shared food, was not a possibility. So could you take us back a little bit into how the your COVID-19 lockdown experience, which I know none of us really want to recollect on very much, but since it was formative <laughs> in the creation of this book, how did that inspire this uh, dinner party daydream that you had that we, we experienced in your book? Sure. Well, you know, of course, books take a long time to Germany. And so the book was already kind of, um, <laughs> I mean, it was it was nearing the end of its sale uh, to the publisher when the when sort of everything started shutting down. In fact, if I remember correctly, I think we kind of struck the deal the week that the world started shutting down. So, you know, the plan was there to write the book all along. Um, <laughs> uh, but suddenly I found myself writing in a very different world than I had anticipated. Um, and initially my idea had simply been that I, you know, books are hard to write. They take a lot of time. I have to maintain a job in the midst of it because nobody pays you very much to write a book anymore. And so um, what kind of a book could I write that would really be enjoyable for a year that also would be doable? And I kind of settled on an essay collection because I know how to write essays. That's what I do for my work. And um, 
you know, what kind of topic would I be interested in? Well, I often write about film. I just wasn't all that interested in writing about movies for this book, but I also love food writing and love biographies. And I thought, well, maybe there's some kind of a combo there. Um, My editor was game. And so we decided on this book, which is a collection of nine essays about um, influential and important and intellectual women um, of the 20th century through the lens of food in some way. Um, You know, influential, that's not to say that they're all maybe well-known names. I think everyone in the book is a name that's familiar to someone, but a lot of people have told me that they maybe only knew one or two names from the book when they started reading it. And so I started, you know, that was sort of March, 2020. We kind of closed the whole deal in May. And then, um, you know, I, I did a lot of reading that summer, but I really started writing the book in September, 2020, and uh, handed it in Memorial Day 21. So there was kind of a big shift in the world over the course of those months. Um, But it was a good project to have on hand, in part because a lot of the things that occupy my time normally were just, you know, not there anymore. (laughs) Um, And uh, and so I had these free free weekends where you know, what, what else would I be doing? I might just be reading a book at home, which is a great thing to do. But what if the books I was reading could go towards a purpose? Um, so I spent a lot of my time doing research and reading biographies and, you know, reading books written by these various women, um, in some cases, watching a lot of movies, and then trying to kind of figure out what was a food related way into their lives? And then what kind of lesson did they have to teach us? So it was a really enjoyable experience. And it was great to finish and realize that in some ways, the book encapsulated hope (laughs) that uh, dinner parties would would return to us, um, which of course they have. Yeah, I I love the like, the Venn diagram of all of your interests personally and professionally seem to perfectly overlap to create this book, to create Salty. And um, because I didn't say it earlier, the the premise of the book is uh, to be asked that imaginary question, that kind of like thought exercise, right? About who would you invite to your dream dinner party or who would you love to go to lunch with if they were still alive today? And that's the premise of this book. And so the, some of the guests that you uh, invite to this dinner party include Ella Baker, uh, Hannah Arendt, who we'll talk a little bit more about today, Octavia Butler, uh, Maya Angelou, and then you mentioned some others who may be lesser known. And I know that there were there were new names to me, like Elizabeth David, uh, Lori Colwyn, um, Alice B. Uh, is it Toklas, mm-hmm. yep. Um, yep, among others, um, and so I, I wonder for you, uh, Alyssa, how much of this book was about showcasing the the voices and stories of these women from history who, and you started to allude to this, aren't given that same cachet or aren't as known in like the zeitgeist as maybe similar male counterparts in, you know, me, me assigning the story saying. Uh, what has been a more historically male leaning and male dominated culture was it a, was it important for you to um, showcase these voices and thoughts and ideas and lives of of these women just as much as having the daydream of what it could be like to sit with them? Yeah, I mean, you know, some of these women, you know, uh, Ella Baker is a great example. Uh, she was as important to the civil rights movement as Martin Luther King, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, you know, the the kind of philosophy that she developed around um, 
helping and, you know, serving communities is basically the backbone of what we think of as like the modern Black Lives Matter movement. So her ideas have been very, very important. Um, and but she got a little edged out because she was all about sitting at dinner tables with poor people and really listening to them. And she wasn't, you know, up there giving charismatic speeches. And you know, she's at a time where a female leader is just not going to get the same attention as a male leader. So, you know, for in some cases, these are just interesting women who I think you deserve to know <laughs> um, and who really are enriching uh, of the way that we think about our lives. But more broadly, I think a dinner party uh, if we think about a, a real dinner party, is sometimes just a way for you to invite your friends over and have them meet one another and to introduce them to one another. And often you're thinking, you know, at a good dinner party, the host has thought about, oh, I'd really like for this person to meet this person. I think they, you know, would have a lot in common or maybe they would really learn from one another. And that's kind of why you have a dinner party. And so in thinking of the book as an answer to that question of your dream dinner party, I was thinking about, okay, well, who would I want to invite to, you know, sort of be introduced to the reader and give the reader something that they didn't know about. So another good example of this is um, the writer, Laurie Colwin, who uh, has definitely had a revival among like kind of New York writers of my age group, sort of like, you know, old millennials, young Gen Xers. And she's kind of been, I don't know if rediscovered is the right word, but her books have just recently started being republished. This happened after, after my book came out, but, um, you know, most people still have never heard of her and her books are not, they're not, like big bombastic epic novels they're just sort of these simple stories about women like trying to figure out how to live a normal life um and i think that they're wonderful books and i hope that in writing about her more people would be inspired to go seek out her novels and you know anecdotally that seems to be happening which is really nice yeah. And I know also like the work of Octavia Butler, which has had its place yeah. in like sci-fi. It's also having a resurgence and becoming really popular and much more mainstream. And there's a there's a new, I think it's an Amazon Prime show um, based on one oh, of her Kindred. most popular yeah. books. Yeah. So there's there's a lot mm -hmm. of um resurgence, which I which I also hope is good for your book in, in its sales as well, because um that's that can reciprocate, you know, and 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 cross-pollinate, if you will, the different readers finding these uh figures and and also learning more about them. So Alyssa, I wanted to ask you specifically about one of the figures in your book who I, I knew a little bit about, and then through you, through your work, through Salty, and and also hearing you um, on one of my favorite NPR shows, On Point, a number of weeks back, made some connections in my mind that were felt mind blowing at the time. That's why I reached out to you to to touch base with you. And that that woman was Hannah Arendt, who was a uh, German Jewish political philosopher. She was an author and a reporter. And she was also a survivor of the Jewish Holocaust. Uh, for those who haven't come across her place in 20th century history, can you give us a brief overview of who Hannah Arendt was and um, how she became known in, you know, especially in political and philosophical circles? Sure. Yeah. Um, she, she, as you said, was um, German Jewish born, um, born in, in Germany, um, to a Jewish family. She and her um, husband fled 
uh, fled the country like many people um, like her did. Uh, by then, she was an intellectual. Most of her circle were, were intellectuals. She studied with Martin Heidegger, who um, he she had an affair with when she was a young person, but remained friends with her whole life. Um, or at least <laughs> frenemies, I don't know. But um, <laughs> they they fled to the U.S. Um, and ended up in New York in the in the 1940s and became an American citizen in 1950. And most people have heard of her because they're familiar with sort of like phrases that were lifted from her most famous books. Um, I think probably the most well known one. Uh, as a book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, which um, is a pretty incredible book that kind of made her career. Um, in it, she really is looking at totalitarianism as a phenomenon in the 20th century. Um, but of course, with with particular reference to fascism and the Nazis, um, and why could such a thing come about in a, you know, a democratic, free-thinking country uh, that prides itself on loving freedom, right? Like, you know, very, uh, very important questions to have. Yes. Um, and still, and, and still very relevant to this day. Still very relevant, probably more relevant than ever. Although I don't think a lot of people actually read her books who cite them. Um, mm. uh, you know, in a more famous, um, phrase that we hear thrown around a lot is the, the banality of evil, which is something that she coined that phrase. Um, and she coined it because she was writing about the trial of Adolf Eichmann um, for the New Yorker that eventually became uh, the book Eichmann in Jerusalem. And in it, she was writing about this trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was the architect of the final solution. Um, and this is, you know, post-war, he's on trial for essentially creating a way for millions of, of people to be murdered mm -hmm. horrendously. And she went to the trial and she writes about him as, you know, what's most remarkable about him is that he's not a remarkable man at all. He's, he's banal. He's a middle manager. He's mediocre. And yet, you know, so what is it about him that allowed him to kind of, uh, and, and many other people to allow this evil to happen? Um, this became quite controversial because, of course, it's very fresh at that moment that this just happened. And calling someone who, on the one hand, really is the architect of evil, calling them banal doesn't sit well with a lot of people. And mm. um, the kind of meaning of what she was saying was obscured in some ways. And of course, there's always valid critiques of everything and all that is true. But when when she wrote about it, that's what she was thinking about. Um, and the idea that evil doesn't tend to present itself to us as like a arc villain who, you know, has like pointy, I don't know, like, you know, some kind of a spike that he carries around or a pitchfork and, you know, just sort yeah, of all kind of like twisting ideas. the mustache, like that evil yeah, kind of archetype of in a, right. a villain. And it's not even the people who appear as villains that really are the reason that evil occurs. Evil occurs because, um, because people just do their jobs and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, I was just following orders, which is kind of the, the, the line that Eichmann and, and others uh, had said about what happened with, with um, the concentration camps. And so, you know, that's, that's sort of where she comes from. She also was part of a circle of mostly expat, um, you know, European Jews who had fled uh, and also, you know, Americans who all were kind of united in the cause 
of trying to figure out basically what had just happened and how could it be prevented and what was happening in the Soviet Union and was it something that should be prevented and just wrestling with the 20th century um, as it was happening instead of the way we do now, which is looking back at it and thinking, well, I would never be part of that. Um, hmm. so that's, you know, that's, that's important. And when I started writing about her, I realized that kind of what was, or the way into her, I, that was actually the first chapter in the book I wrote, although it appears pretty late in the book. Um, she had these cocktail parties or she was part of these cocktail parties that were always kind of ongoing in this intellectual circle. And it was in those, um, gatherings, which are convivial, you know, which involve food and, canapes and like way too many martinis but this is where people were really you know hashing out their ideas in the presence of one another and fighting about them and arguing and in some cases like stomping out the door you know um and there were personality conflicts and it was very messy but it was it was a place where uh thinking was taken seriously and for her, thinking is a conversation with the self and a conversation with others. And mm. that can only really be done in that kind of a setting. Yeah. There, what, what strikes me about the picture that you paint when you are when you were talking in Salty about Arendt's uh, parties or dinner parties or cocktail parties, these soirees, and, and what would actually happen within them? Like sometimes it would be alcohol-induced and sometimes it was just, you know, people being people and getting into, you know, debates and sharing ideas, but also getting into arguments and getting offended. And I think there was one guest um, at, at her her party that she so disagreed with that she refused to speak to for, I think, three years, but kept bumping into over time. Um, so there was there was almost this like Twitter sphere vibe that I was getting from these parties, which were people getting along, but also people really not getting along and engaging in, in ways that I would think we would also, if we applied like the lens of social media, say like putting on your block list, muting, and like kind of siloing off. But but there was something obviously a little bit more or a lot more human in the proximity and in the shared experience that people were having in rooms together, which of course has like a lot of value and is also the imaginary pretense of, you know, why would you get people together? And like you said, the the pretense of having a dinner party is like interest. What people do you think would be interested to meet and and to meet one another and to be among mm -hmm. one another? And so for yeah. for our rent though, this was not just like it wasn't sport. She wasn't organizing events for people to come together and get in arguments with one another uh, for the sake of sport or like intellectual combativeness or like debate club, right? There, there was something that was very, for her as a political philosopher, very essential to the function of sharing different ideas, but also disagreeing and valuing differences of opinion. Could you tell us a little bit about um, Arendt's philosophy about uh, in the scope of her work, very, which is very big and very heady, like trying to understand how totalitarianism works and how fascism uh, happens and, and things like this, but how she saw the power and the importance of individuality through social connections and, and friendships. Could you tell us a little sure. bit about that? Yeah. So as I mentioned, her idea of what um, thinking is, is that it is always a conversation. It's a conversation that I'm having with myself. And then it's a conversation that I am having with others. And thinking to her was the, the tool we have to fight 
totalitarianism, which in authoritarianism, which aims to kind of flatten us and make us into cogs in a machine rather than individuals. Um, and for her, friendship is a place where individuality is um, not just kind of celebrated in like a boring banal way, like a greeting card or something, but a place where I learn who I am because I am learning how I am not you and vice versa. And also importantly, the way we see things is different. Um, perhaps not just because you have a different opinion than me, but because you're a different person than me, you have a different set of experiences, you have a different way of seeing the world. And that doesn't mean that everybody's opinion is equally valid, but it does mean that when we hear one another's opinions, we start to understand what it would be like to be not me. So that takes us out of solipsism and sort of, you know, the belief that my way is the only correct way or is the only possible correct way and into something that's much more kind of rich and um, helps us to think more effectively and thinking is where we start to imagine how the world would be if it were a better place um, or how it could be and that also fights against the totalitarianism that like somehow seeks to isolate us and make us solipsistic um, you know that the person you mentioned that she sort of disagreed with and wouldn't talk to for a long time was the writer and critic Mary McCarthy, who is a very, very important figure in American literature in her own right. But the two of them, you know, essentially McCarthy made, she was kind of a wisecracker and that's what she's known for in some ways. And she made an offhanded joke about Hitler, um, which went off just about exactly as well as you can imagine um, in that room. And, and Arendt got upset and, left the room and then but the two of them kept bumping into each other and i think you're right in pointing out that this is like twitter but not like twitter at all in that <laughs> you know i don't ever if i don't like someone on twitter i can just unfollow them and never i like i've forgotten they exist uh pretty rapidly whereas with um you know, with a with a social circle, you it's very hard to avoid people um, that you don't like. <laughs> like mm -hmm. they're they're still going to be there. They're going to be at the parties. Like they're friends with your friends. What are you going to do, right? And um, eventually, the two of them were on a subway platform uh, after a late night, and they sort of were ignoring one another. And then they must have just decided enough was enough. And one of them said to the other, we think so alike, we, we should be friends. And then they were the best of friends. Mary McCarthy actually finished Arendt's last book for her after she died. So oh, they wow. were very close. And there's, you can read their letters um, to one another, and they're quite wonderful. But yeah, I mean, you know, friendship for Arendt was, it was an oasis, she called it, which is a place that we go to get away from you know, the sort of horrible things of the world. But it's not a just a place to kick back and do nothing. It's a place to talk and think and to learn and appreciate the difference of other people. So one thing I like about this definition is that I feel like a lot of um, like initiatives that are supposed to be about listening to people with different points of view mm -hmm. or something um, these days, they tend to be very like, let's just get a bunch of people in a room who have different points of view. And as long as we make sure every point of view on the spectrum is uh, established, then 
uh, you know, then we'll be good and like good things will happen. That's really, really not what Arendt was saying because for her, the, the relationship was part of it. And also there are opinions that are not good opinions because they cause harm to others, Mm -hmm. but there's also a range within that, that we can come to understand and come to, um, you know, a fuller understanding of ourselves, even if we don't wind up agreeing with someone else, at least we start to understand better uh, where our deficiencies are and what blind spots we have. Yeah, that that's, I think, the important caveat. And I think it, when we have these conversations today, um, it, it can get so bifurcated and, and like, um, and by in, in polarized in the sense that there's a lot of either orness to it all, right. Mm-hmm. Of the value of opinions is that every opinion, like you were saying, ought to be equally represented and, and therefore that no opinion can do any harm, that they're all necessarily beneficial or, censorship or, you know, censorship in one case or quote unquote being canceled in another case, or just like contesting or disputing some of those opinions is, is somehow censorship or cancellation or social shaming. And there's what I'm hearing you say, and and what our, our, what our would say, I think, is that it seems like she was conveying that um, her philosophy, philosophically, she was guided by this radical acceptance that like opinions exist and different experiences exist, reflecting different people in the world, their identities and how they've lived. And that's kind of like the truth that she held. But then within her social experiences, right, in, in like friendship and social connections, when they're real and not just like hollow or digital are governed by certain social agreements or agreements between parties, right? About some element of like respect, some element of reciprocity, some element of care for the other, which we don't have on social media, right? Or we don't have in those like among Twitter trolls. So friendship was requisite, it sounds like, because like that kind of guided some rules about like what was and wasn't acceptable and like what you could and couldn't say. Or, you know, if somebody offended her, she would say, that really offended me. And I'm going to tell you exactly why. And, um, but there was like, it it wasn't just like an open form. It wasn't like mob mentality. It wasn't um, gladiatorial, like who's going to survive this debate to the death. There were like maybe... um, unspoken social agreements that existed in these atmospheres, which I think we would call, you know, friendship in many ways, right? Or whatever constitutes friendship. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, I would, I, I think a lot of people might be surprised by how contentious and cantankerous people could be in that context. Um, Like you would think they were enemies the way they were talking to one another. Um, I think we've become less good at talking that way. And I, I, yeah. I think this because I, you know, I spend a lot of my time around um, film critics. <laughs> That's my job. Those are who my friends are. Mm-hmm. And um, people have definitely said to me, like, oh, you must really hate so-and-so um, whose, you know, opinions are diametrically opposed to mine. And, you know, frequently it's someone with whom I'm really good friends and I'll say, no, I don't hate them. I just think their opinions are nuts, you know? And like, (laughs) that's something that's pretty common among uh, film critics. And in some cases um, people really do take it personally, but you know, if you're constantly putting your opinion out in the world and testing it and being aware that who you are shapes what your opinion is, which is always true of art, then you become a little better at 
saying, no, you're wrong without saying like, no, you, you are an invalid person. Like those two things don't go hands in hand. Um, and that used to be, I think, at least judging from the historical record and from what people say, that used to be a bit more common in cases of intellectual, um, you know, disagreement as well, that disagreeing over an idea didn't, it could mean that we become sworn mortal enemies, but it also didn't have to. Um, but of course, the way to make sure that it doesn't is to have a strong friendship foundation and also a set of, um, you know, they did have a set of shared experiences when you've, when you've fled your home because, you know, your life is being threatened um, and moved to an entirely different country, you're just going to have a different way of seeing things than people who are more settled and secure and comfortable and haven't ever had to do anything like that. But that doesn't mean that those of us who haven't had that experience can't also engage in that. Um, and as an arts writer, generally, this is why I really think the arts are so important to well, one of, one of many reasons that I think the arts are so important to a thriving democracy is that if we can't experience and kind of argue over <laughs> um, art and, and see how we all have different reactions to the same works and that doesn't make us more or less invalid um, because we're different people, then I think that helps prime us for having that experience when we're talking about you know, policy, about like how best to build new roads in our town or like you know, how to how to get food to people who are hungry and just all these matters that don't need to be partisan, but often are painted that way because people are, uh, you know, too lazy to put it in the work. Yeah, Alyssa, it reminds me that just yesterday I was I was sharing a, a beer with my partner and we got into not a heated debate, but like people who might have seen us might have thought we were talking about something very serious and the, and the content of our very serious conversation was about the morality of the characters of season two of White Lotus. And, <laughs> and we were debating like which couple, uh, you know, of the, the couples in this, in this, in the show would make it the longest and, and who were fundamentally flawed. And honestly, like there was nothing emotional about it. There was one moment where I was, where I did feel myself go, I know that I'm right <laughs> and my partner yeah. is wrong, but, but I stopped myself and I said, how fun is it that we get to have this like meaningful of a conversation mm -hmm. about morality and like these, these characters from a fictional story, not because they're real, but because they represent archetypes and, and symbols, you know, that we are relating to or clashing with or getting activated by and that we get to have this conversation, like my partner and I, or a friend and I, about like by way of or by proxy through these characters in this yes. this art, which was entertaining and fun and sexy, but also actually held meaning for us to help to relate to different things. And that's kind of what I'm hearing you say too about the function of art and um, how it can help us to maybe practice the the debate aspect and the disagreement aspect without it being life and death. I'm right, you're wrong, and so forth. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be, I mean, I think that's a great example. It also could be something as simple as like, I really love this painting <laughs> and yeah. you just, it does nothing for you and us um, experiencing it together and then talking about it is a really important way, I think, for us to realize like, I don't, my eyes only see the world through my eyes. Um, and I could be missing something. And even if I'm always striving to learn and expand my frame of reference, there is just no way I am ever, ever going to 
fully grasp, you know, the, the extent of everything that I could know about the world. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is a challenging thing for us to understand and it becomes much more challenging in our time because most of us have kind of seeded our opinion making to the algorithms (laughs) which are designed to, to extract money from our wallets. So, um, so that's really, I think where I come down on it and it's why it's really exciting to me when we're able to do it. Yeah. So, so Alyssa, you mentioned, uh, being a a film and culture critic and, and the different relationships that you have with other film and culture critics and how you can be, you can love them and also disagree with their opinions very vociferously. But I'm curious in your role, because you've been, you've been a film and culture critic for some time now, since 2009, I'm curious if you have noticed any significant shifts or changes in the culture, like in quote unquote, the culture, which I know like there is no monoculture and there never was, right. but from your vantage point of what culture is in film, in culture uh, and so forth, mm-hmm. have you noticed like, what is the the most significant shifts or changes been since like 2009? And you, was it just to inter intersect that question? Does it have to do with the algorithm? Does it have to do with social media or is it something else yeah. that you've been tracking? I do think honestly, the algorithm thing has a lot to do with it. I'm like mm-hmm. becoming uh, and I should say my uh, background, I have a degree in information technology. Like I'm a coder. There I was there in the early aughts. Like we were, you know, I was there when Facebook was born quite literally. And so, um, so I've been watching this much longer, <laughs> sort of its whole lifespan. Um, and yeah, I think that um, it's not algorithms that are bad. I think it's just people's unquestioning acceptance of them that is bad. And it's a little bit like we're frogs thrown into a cold pot of water and then the heat has been slowly turning up on us for the last 20 years and we're not no we're it it takes a minute (laughs) to notice that you know all all the different ways that being catered to and sold to and directed at um are bad and i i teach gen z kids they seem a lot more tuned into this fact uh which is kind of surprising but you know they'll they'll readily say oh well social media is designed to stoke rage because they know that rage is what keeps you clicking and they want to sell you stuff and i was like oh yeah but there's a lot of people my age who could never articulate that to you they think they're just seeing what their friends post so that's one big thing um but when it comes to art that means that um you know, people's tastes have really gotten uh, knocked off kilter by the algorithm. I guess we mean Netflix when we say that, but it's really a lot of compounding factors. I had a conversation with a colleague recently where this colleague who's a very smart person, doesn't write about art, but is a smart person, lives in a major urban area, looked at, um, I think it was a list from the New York Times, but it wasn't it wasn't a very obscure one and said, man, like I haven't heard of any of these movies. None of them played near me. And I was like, buddy, we live like two neighborhoods away from one another. I promise you every single one of these movies played. In fact, half of them are currently playing um, in theaters and the rest are all streamable right now. Like you, you, you just assume they're not there because they haven't been shoved at you by an algorithm. Um, And this I find concerning (laughs) Um, because I think there was a time in the past, and I've talked about this with friends about live music too, where we just had this idea that if you wanted to engage with something, you had to like go find out what was happening and then you would decide what you wanted to do. Like 
what bands are playing near me or, you know, what, what movies are in the theater and you had to go look it up and then you would look up some reviews and then you'd make a decision. And now we're kind of used to the ad just like free floating past us like jellyfish. And it's like, Oh yeah, I've heard of that. Um, And, uh, and if it doesn't, then we just assume it doesn't exist. And I'm as guilty of this as anyone. I don't know anything about music and I'm terrible about music and I rely on other people to like, send me Spotify albums and say, you should listen to this. (laughs) Um, So, you know, obviously it's hard, but the biggest shift really has been that it's very, very difficult to get people to even know that a thing exists. And it it is in part because there's a lot of stuff, but it's not entirely because there's a lot of stuff. Some of it is just that we have trained ourselves out of curiosity. And we've also trained ourselves out of risk-taking, um, you know, I, and which I find really sad um, in that the best experiences I've ever had at a movie are where I kind of just walked into the theater because it was playing at the time that I wanted to see a movie. And then you see something that totally surprises you that maybe you wouldn't have picked based on the description, because what can descriptions even tell you about a movie? Um, And then it's like really extraordinary and shifts your worldview. Um, But that isn't going to happen for people who are mainly watching things because the algorithm has resurfaced, you know, some something that it knows that they'll like. And I really think this is only going to get worse with artificial intelligence in that, uh, you know, they'll be able to basically on the fly reverse engineer stuff out of your already expressed preferences. Um, And you might be like content with that content, uh, which is actually a funny sentence to say out loud now that I say it, but, um, but, you know, then we we totally lose this thing that happens when you watch something that you didn't think you would like, and maybe you still don't like it, but it like unnerves you and unsettles you. Um, it's sort of like we're becoming more and more attuned because it's very economically advantageous for, for um, entertainment companies to do this. We're becoming more and more attuned to only entertaining ourselves with stuff that's sort of pre-chewed and that we already know we'll like. Um, so that that seems bad (laughs) to me. Um, And as a critic, you're always trying to counteract it and say, Hey, like, okay, watch your whatever comfort food, but like, look at this thing, this thing might surprise you. Um, But it's gotten harder and harder over the years to convince people that something that surprises you isn't necessarily bad because it Mm. wasn't what you were expecting. Well, that makes for an interesting segue, Alyssa, to, to another kind of surprise, um, that maybe can be for our listeners uh, a little experiment that they can perform or a little adventure that they can take that's pretty low risk in the grand scheme of things, but might um, might affirm this idea that uh, surprise and, and delights and um, not always going to the thing that comforts you can be a really good thing. And, and what I'm referencing indirectly is a recent essay of yours called The Glories of Dining Out Alone. Uh, and yes. <laughs> in, this, in this piece, which you published in January of, uh, on, on Vox, um, you shared uh, how solo dining as a, as a practice, as an experience, which does come with privileges, uh, including, I was surprised to learn, legal privileges, because it was not always legal for especially mm-hmm. for for women in certain places in the country to dine alone 
places like New York City. <laughs> places like New York City, to be clear, yeah. yeah, because of these perceptions about being like sex workers or or just or just like the social stigmas that were attached to um, being a woman who happened to be dining alone or in a group of other women, even in New York City. Uh, but you write about how dining alone for you, which you've done often, and you mentioned like feeling very privileged to be able to do this, uh, especially in New York City, which has so many great op- uh, opportunities for great dining and solo dining at bar, like at, sitting at the bar and otherwise. But it's a it's been a source of magic and wonder for you, and even connection to others, despite or maybe because of the fact that you are by yourself. So I want to contrast this idea earlier of like the importance of friendship and social connection and dinner parties and cocktail parties and, and friendships writ large um, with the seeming contrast of dining alone. But in this piece, you really say that solo dining can be kind of like a resource in building social bonds that aren't valued of connecting with the bartender and, and, and you know, kind of being among people on your own in a way that kind of lowers your guard. Can you tell us a little bit about what for you the glories of dining alone have been and if there is any direct or indirect connection between, <laughs> you know, sure. surprising yourself and, and being being a person in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, actually dining alone goes closer to her first definition of thinking, which is being in conversation with myself. Um, right. You know, if I'm, if I'm dining alone, I have a better, um, actually an ideal space for thinking, (laughs) uh, which there's so little space for now. do, Do people always do that? Or do they just sit on their phones? Like, you know, we all sit on our phones, of course, but if I'm willing to take it, it's a moment where I can just think, you know, maybe I have a little notebook nearby and I'm jotting down ideas as they come to me if they do. But um, yeah, and so I, I I love doing this. I think, you know, it would be important not to always do one or the other, but to to combine them. But to me, um, yeah, I, I, you know, it never sort of crossed my mind that there was anything odd or noteworthy about eating out alone until I think I'm like mentioned to my mother or something that I, oh yeah, like I, I'm at dinner. Um, and she asked if my husband was there. I said, no, no, you know, I'm just, I don't know what I was doing. And she's like, oh, isn't that like weird? And I thought, is it weird? I don't know. I've never thought about that. I've it, Nobody had ever sort of made that, you know, s- sort of statement. And I, you know, if you look around a restaurant, it, at least in New York, it's not, weird at all to dine alone. But I, I, you know, so I started thinking about it. And I thought, well, this is, this is a really like, great thing for me. Um, I love it. And why, why do people think it's weird? So I talked to some people about that, and then sort of started looking into the history and realized that, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that people feel that way. Um, some of which seem very generally generationally tied. But I, when I wrote about it, I was like, this is a great thing to do in part, because, without someone else to entertain or be entertained by, you are there with yourself um, and, and maybe strangers. Um, and who knows, you know, you might strike up a great conversation, but also if you don't want to, nobody cares. Um, and, uh, and so you can concentrate on the experience of eating, which, you know, we don't do too much of. Uh, you can really enjoy that. Uh, you also often can get into places that you can't get into with two people because there's a waiting list for the, for the, you know, a table, but you could sit at a bar alone. Rarely are those reserved seating. Um, and, 
you know, you, you get that chance to sort of be with yourself um, and, and see how that goes, which I think is funny. And I published the piece. I got several uh, lovely emails, like maybe six or seven over the weekend. I think it published on a Friday and over the weekend, I got a bunch of emails and they were all from people who self-identified as being in their sixties and seventies and retired and who said, uh, you know, when I retired, I was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with my time? And I like sort of ventured out to a restaurant by myself and everybody thought I was crazy, but I love it. And now I'm getting all my friends to do it as well. And of course we eat together sometimes. Um, but eating alone has been like such a wonderful, restful, peaceful thing to do. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> it really is. Um, so I recommend it. it. I think it's a great thing to, to give a shot. I love that. And I love your connection, Alyssa, to the, the idea that real thinking is a conversation with yourself and with others, but also, you know, a conversation with yourself and getting in touch with what you think and maybe what better way to help uh, patronize some some local establishments and also yep. give yourself a little respite in the in the process is through through this. So uh, Alyssa Wilkinson, um, she is the uh, author of Salty, Lessons on Eating, Drinking, and Living from Revolutionary Women. Uh, she's also a senior culture reporter and critic at Vox.com. You can read uh, her articles there, uh, I think, every week, and we'll link to um, her column uh, in the show notes. So Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us, for being so generous with your time, and for helping us to think uh, much more broadly. And um, I look forward to some maybe like polite debates in a future dinner party with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. We hope you enjoyed what you heard today. You can always find us at thenewstory.is, including our full back catalog of interviews from throughout the year. Leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts, especially to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It goes a long way in helping us find and share our work with new listeners. Until soon, dear listener, keep storying on. We'll speak to you soon. Bye for now.